come stop and take a trip down on my block Where you see hidden potential, young minds sharper than Ginsu And ain't afraid to speak their mind if they got something against you We standing with you, we tackle issues like civic pride Hate will cease to exist, let's put our differences aside From my side to your side, from Dutchtown to Southside From Penrose to Northside, from Benton Park to Old North to West End to West Side We bless when we step out, we stand down, rise up, stand together, wise up this is Stitchcast Studio, produced by St. Louis Story Stitchers in St. Louis, Missouri. Our Stitchcast sits down with park ranger Doug Harding to discuss the preservation of local history through public lands in this special The Wild My City edition of Stitchcast Studio. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches. Uh, you talked about railroad tracks causing mm -hmm. uh, businesses to kind of move away from the riverfront. Well, because once the Eads Bridge was finished in 1876, mm -hmm. that connected the railroads on the east side and the west side. Got you. So that was the first railroad trestle or bridge since the one in uh, uh, Rock Island, a steamboat knocked over in the 1850s, um, that connected the east and west of the river. So mm -hmm. before, the trains had to stop on the other side of the river, unload mm -hmm. the cargo, ferried across the river and put it on other trains to go farther west. Ah. So when you come, you take in the metro link across the East Bridge. So when you come in from the east side, you go underground. Gotcha. Okay. You go underground up to the old post office and then you swing south. Okay. And you come out on the south side of downtown, you know, where the, the bus and train station is now, mm -hmm. over by, what is it, Enterprise Center where the blues yeah. play. Okay. That's where you come out from underground. Gotcha. From there you go into Union Station. So all the trains, and, and that's where the freight yards are, all those tracks over there, that's where the freight yards are still there today, they still use them. Mm. So all the trains were coming into Union Station. The business district left the riverfront and moved closer to the station where the trains were stopping. Gotcha. Okay. So because of the railroads, we turned our back on the river. Mm. And that's why we saw the decline of the riverfront. But, you know, in the 1850s and 60s, with the mass migration going to California and Oregon, the riverfront was a, a busy place. Right, right, right. You know, there were businesses, there were houses and stuff. But even the riverfront was always one of the worst neighborhoods to live in. Mm. Because it was so busy, it was so noisy. In the 1850s, the north half of the riverfront going up to Washington Street, where the East Bridge comes from, was known as Battle Row. Gotcha. And that was Irish immigrants who were coming in from the famine of the 1840s, you know, and that's where they could get cheap housing above those shops and things like that. So there was a lot of apartments and things, usually were one rooms. So you had entire families living in one room on, above those shops and, wow. and factories and stuff down there. But again, most of the buildings, and this talks about all the buildings that were in that 40 square block. Um, you can see they're all four stories, they're all business manufacturing and stuff like that. And if you really look close at them, a number of them, you'll notice windows are broken out and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So by the 30s, the St. Louis Riverfront was not a very good area. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, and I want to get down to, I mean, you know, and then some of them, there was apartments or some of them were boarding houses, some of them were hotels right. that you rent the room by the month. Mm -hmm. So. This is where people could find cheap housing. Gotcha. It was along the riverfront. Mm -hmm. um, 
And of course, like uh, this one woman told me, when they went slumming, they went down there. Right. You know, so yeah. So Joe Jones, get back to Joe Jones. Joe Jones um, has this art school. Well, he runs a foul with the St. Louis Art League, and they get him evicted ah. from the courthouse. So he goes down to the riverfront, and he squats in an empty building not too far from the Rock House Saloon. Hmm. And he starts a little commune down there of poets and artists. And Joe Jones was uh, uh, described as a communist, an anarchist, an alcoholic, mm. and a socialist. And so he collected this little commune of uh, like-minded thinkers down there, and they were trying to start this little art enclave. And that's when he painted that painting that we have there. Okay. Well, lo and behold. Which one? The one I showed you above in in the art, uh, arch exhibit the, the one with one. the with the with the with the trains yeah and, okay and, gotcha. and the with steam. the railroads and whatnot yeah so he painted that while he was down there you see there were, there were two streets that actually had a neighborhood of people living there and that was valentine street which i uh, which doesn't exist anymore i don't mm. think it's anywhere in, in st louis uh, and poplar street now, Poplar Street is the boundary of the park. And from Interstate 55 to the river, Poplar Street's still there. Okay? Um, the north side of Poplar Street is where our maintenance building complex is. The next block up was Valentine. And so this is one of the houses that sat on Poplar Street. We, wouldn't, we won't knock that one down, but when they build the Poplar Street Bridge in the 60s, that's when she goes. Um, and then Valentine Street has, let's find it, Chestnut. Why doesn't Valentine Street exist anymore? Well, because it doesn't continue through the city. And some of the streets now have changed names, like uh, there used to be Myrtle Street, which was the next block but it doesn't exist from the interstate to the river because the arch grounds. And then on the other side of the interstate is called Clark. Mm. Mm. Right. Because of that urban renewal project around the stadium, they took down another neighborhood there. Mm. And that area on South Broadway was originally known as our Chinatown. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. That was our Chinatown. And when they wanted to build the stadium and around it, they, what they hoped to do was buy out the people and move them to another location altogether to, to keep that Chinatown. But as soon as they got the money for the property, they spread out into the county. Mm. Like everybody else who was fleeing the mm. city to the county and the suburbs. And so we lost our Chinatown because of the Bush Stadium in 65. So um, um, I've been a park ranger here since 1986, although I did do a summer season here in 1979. And so the, the downtown area has changed considerably since the first time I came down here and worked here. Hmm. I've seen a lot of really nice buildings go and be replaced by something else. So this is Valentine Street. And this is the accommodations you could rent a two-room flat. Oh, so this is like maybe slightly a step up from a studio where, you know, you got a bedroom and then the rest is like, what, kitchen and... Well, yeah, but guess where the bathroom was? In the hallway. No. 
outside? It was in the yard. Mm. Oh. In 1940, 50% of the houses in St. Louis still did not have indoor plumbing. Really? In 1940? 1940 census. Good. 50% yes. of the in the city did not have indoor plumbing. So you had outhouses and you went to a bathhouse. That was a public bathhouse to take a bath. That meant you had to go to the yard to a pump mm -hmm. to bring your water into your kitchen to cook. Wow. Wow, and that's, 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 that's like, yeah, that's like 80 years ago. Yeah. That's not, that's a person ago. Now, when I, <laughs> when I lived in the city, my house was built in 1905. Okay. And it was built with, and they advertised when they, when they put it up for sale, that it had a water closet and a bathroom on wow. the second floor and a water closet in the basement. Hmm. And so they were promoting that it had indoor plumbing. Right, because that was that a was deal. a new innovation. But that was west of Grant. Mm -hmm. You know, I lived in the Tower Grove Heights neighborhood, and this house was built in 1905, and that was like the beginning of the suburbs. Gotcha. It was on the edge of the city, and so that was one of the new first planned neighborhoods okay. of the 20th century. And so they were advertising the fact that my house, brand new house in 1905, that cost seven thousand dollars had indoor plumbing. Wow. Wow. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You already know what time it is. Time for another StitchCast Studio Arts Interlude. That's right, we about to pick the city up. This week, we have a Story Stitch's original song entitled America. Oh, beautiful For space and sky For amber ways of grain Above the fruited plain America America God shed His grace on thee And crowned thy good With brotherhood From sea to shine and see
that's so, 80 years ago. So that's these not houses that long. down here, these I were, can't even imagine. I mean, right, I'm glad I was born when I was born. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All I know is indoor plumbing. Yeah. This house here was built in 1857. It had a privy that you're still using in the 1930s. Mm. What's a privy? An outhouse. Mm. The right. privy is the the uh, vault that they put underground. Gotcha. Usually brick or stone lined. Mm -hmm. That's where it all goes. Gotcha. So whatever you couldn't feed to the hogs or burn in the trash pit went down the privy. And so today, <laughs> there are people who actually dig up privies. But why? Because of the archaeological evidence. Okay. And one of the things, uh, let me introduce you to one of the gems I found from down in that old neighborhood. She kind of predates that time, um, but Privy. Yeah. Don't privies like, like I would from what you're describing, like don't they like fill up at some point? What do you do when it fills well, up? That's it. If it fills up, it's gonna take a long time to fill, but it will eventually fill up. You dig another one, you move the outhouse over that. Oh. So word. there are groups of people who, who dig them up because of what they find that got thrown down there. Usually they could tell you about the people who lived in the house. Mm. Because uh, one, they might find morphine bottles, you know, uh -huh. or they might find um, diabetic mm. syringes, uh -huh. or they might find, uh, you know, like cosmetic product bottles. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, the, the bottle's empty, they just throw it down the pretty. Hmm. You know, well, they might find they old gotta, china. They gotta, they gotta dig through what I'm assuming. Is bodily waste in order to find these yeah, things. Yeah, but it's a hundred-year-old bodily waste. Does that make it so better? It's basically like the, <laughs> you know, like the. It's a the solid. Ground. It goes out with a shovel. You wash. Oh, off, okay. You know? But yeah, basically that's what you do. But you're going through hundred-year-old bodily waste. You know? Yeah. So, but you might find like uh, scraps from from the kitchen table, mm. animal bones and things that they threw down there. Um, so you can kind of see what kind of diets they were having. Got you. Food, mm. animal remains you might find down there. Um, so there's a lot of things you can find if you can find a privy that will tell you about the people who lived there. I was well, not privy to that information. <laughs> so uh, one of the most uh, colorful characters that I found from that neighborhood, her name was Eliza Haycraft. Mm. She was born in Kentucky in 1820. Gotcha. And she comes to St. Louis prior to 1850. Um, according to the 1850 census, she was a prostitute. Mm. And she eventually, the 1870 census has her, 36 year old female, and she has $100,000 in real property. Dang. And $2,000 in cash. So she all, all of this from prostitutes? Well, she became a madam. Mm. And she ran a house mm. down on that neighborhood, right off of Poplar Street. And that neighborhood during the Civil War was so notorious that the military provost marshal, who was like the military police, banned Union soldiers from going down to that neighborhood. If any of them were caught in that neighborhood, their passes would be revoked and they would immediately be sent back to their regiment to the front. Wow. Because, you know, St. Louis was 
you know, a place where they came for leave and things mm -hmm. like that. I mean, they were barred from that area because of its reputation. Now, its what, reputation of prostitutes. Mm -hmm. Okay, Got so I, I, just, just out of curiosity, other like there had to be something other than prostitution going on that well, led them to say, well, soldiers can't go there. Like, like were, they, were soldiers really that anti-prostitution then? Well, the soldiers weren't. That's why they were getting in trouble for going there. Gotcha. It was the too. military that didn't want them down there because of the related diseases that they could catch. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that, that was going to be my next so question. So, archaeologists just recently found the site for that building. Cool. And some of the artifacts they found medicines dealing with social diseases, hmm. uh, abortion medicines, hmm. which of course weren't illegal back then. Right, right. Okay. So, um, you know, so they're finding these things all related to mm. this business of prostitution. What Eliza Haycraft will do was she's, she's running a house now. Her clients are the, the cream of society mm -hmm. mm. that are going down because again, if you go slumming, you go down to the riverfront. Right, right, right. right. And so what she does with her money is she buys a property, mm. real estate. Mm. In 1870, she owns over $100,000 worth of real estate. In 1870. She will die a millionaire. Exactly. Before she dies, she decides she goes to Bellefontaine Cemetery. Now, who's buried in Bellefontaine Cemetery? I don't know who. All the movers and shakers of St. Louis. Mm. All the, I mean, Anheuser-Busch is all buried in there, you know. Wow. The Blows are buried there. All the prominent businesses of people have mausoleum. Well, the board of directors did not want to sell her a plot. Mm. Wow. Because of her profession, Bus right? Yeah. Well, they were also all of her customers. Mm. <laughs> and so she basically said, well, maybe I'll talk to your wives and let them decide. Mm. Right, uh. Okay, so they compromised. <laughs> right, they right, sold right. her an entire plot mm -hmm. in the cemetery, but she could never have a marker marking her grave. Mm. Oh, wow. So you go there today, and there is a number, I think it's number 25, at her grave. She is part of their tour. Mm. And they'll tell the story of Eliza Haycraft when wow. you do the tour of Belfont. So she is a famous person that's buried there, but because of the agreement that she would actually, you know, she died a millionaire. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and she died in 1871. Wow. So, so what would be the, is it conceivable to give her a marker now? I think so, but it, it also, you have to look at the, uh, I mean, her heirs would have to get permission. Mm. Mm. Are there heirs? Um, the other thing is the Bellefontaine Cemetery is a private cemetery. Mm -hmm. So the board has to approve it, yeah. and then who's going to put the marker there? So she was one of the uh, more flamboyant characters. Unfortunately, because of the short amount of time I was given, and the fact that our archives just moved from the old courthouse to the old post office, they're still in flux and moving. But um, and so what I did year find was the arch? Um, what year did they start the development where they were taking out the houses? Okay, so and that was done in the 30s. Okay. Up to up to 40. Okay. Is when they cleared it. So the park was uh, made a, a national monument in 1935 by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But the idea starts with Luther Eli Smith. This gentleman right here. Now Luther Eli Smith was a prominent lawyer in St. Louis. In 1933, he is 
coming back from Vincennes, Indiana to St. Louis. And he's in Vincennes because he's a part of the group that's trying to create the George Rogers Clark Memorial. George Rogers Clark was William Clark's brother, but he was famous because he brought a bunch of Virginians down here during the American Revolution and he would capture from the British basically everything from the Mississippi River to the Ohio River mm. and hold it for the Americans. Hi. Okay? So there was a battle in Vincennes over a British fort that George Rogers Clark would defeat the British. He actually captures a British general there and sends him back to Virginia as a prisoner of war. Mm. And so Vincennes, now this is during a time of depression, they persuade the federal government to build a monument there. One, to kind of make Vincennes on the map again, but also to bring tourism that would help their economy. Mm. Okay, so Luther Eli Smith is on that board. He's coming back to St. Louis and crosses the Poplar Street Bridge on the train, and he looks at the St. Louis Riverfront, right? Mm -hmm. And he thinks, you know, there's got to be a way to, because this is what people see when they come to St. Louis. I mean, in the 1930s, the railroad is still the way to travel. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we don't have airplanes yet. I mean, okay. we do, but we're not using them for yeah. airlines, right? So coming into St. Louis by rail, that's what you're seeing. Mm. And he's thinking, this does not give a good impression of St. Louis to people coming in. So he um, persuades our mayor, Bernard Dickman, mm -hmm. on this idea. And so they form what was called the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial Association. It was a non-for-profit group to raise funding and political clout to get Congress to make a national park on the riverfront. What they decided to do is they latched on to Thomas Jefferson. Now, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been looking for an icon for the Democratic Party. Now, the Republican Party had Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. but the Democrats really didn't have someone that they could, you know, show mm -hmm. as a symbol of the Democrats. And so Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes on to Thomas Jefferson. 1935 was when Thomas Jefferson was put on the nickel. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was a buffalo. 1935 was when the Jefferson Memorial was built in Washington, D.C. In 1935, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, through presidential proclamation from a bill that Congress had passed called the Historic Sites Act of 1935, which gave the president power to set aside land for its historic significance to be preserved and managed by the National Park Service. Mm. Now, only Congress can make a national park. Under the Historic Sites Act, the president can set aside land because of its historical significance. Mm. Mm. And so he can create monuments and memorials, national battlefields and things like that because okay. of what happened there. And then the Organic Act of 1936, which created the National Park Service, no, 1916, gave the president power to set aside places for their natural significance. Now, Congress made Yellowstone in 1974 the first national park. They also set aside Yosemite and preserved that, but gave it to the state of California for a long time. So California ran it, but Congress made it a national park. And so Congress is the only one that can make a national park. In, in 2018, they changed our name from the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial to the Gateway Arch National Park. Mm. So Congress made us a national park in 2018. Okay. But prior to that, we were a, a national memorial. We were still run by the National Park Service. Mm. So Bernard Dickman and Luther Eli Smith Square persuades Franklin Delano Roosevelt to create the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, and that's done in 1935. In 1947, 
Jenny made the Jefferson National Memorial Association raises funds to hold a competition to find out what this memorial is going to look like. Because right now all we had was uh, 40 square blocks and so they actually raised up money. First place prize was $40,000. 1947. Then there was a second place, third place, fourth place prizes as well. And so uh, 172 architectural firms submitted entries. And my understanding, they had a, a board of, of judges to look at all these 172 entries. My understanding is everyone that saw Errol Saarinen's Gateway Arch knew that had won. That wasn't the problem. The problem was figuring out who the runners-up were going to be because there was cash prizes for those two. Right. And so we have some of the, I think, the top six ideas in that exhibit that I showed you, you know, that shows the building mm -hmm. and stuff, so you can see what some of the other ideas were. And so that's when the idea of the Gateway Arch. But then uh, the Korean War came along, and the thing was, it was one-third private contributions, two-thirds federal funding. The Jenny May, or Jefferson National Expansion Memorial Association, raised that one-third. The city of St. Louis even passed a tax, raised their own taxes for money for the monument. So they voted on it and passed it. Now, there's, I've heard the rumors that there was ballot stuffing going on and, and some shenanigans, but you know that's typical of all elections. You know, I haven't mm -hmm. seen any proof that it actually happened. And you know, this is a St. Louis. That's not the only time they've done that. Mm. They've done it several times more. They passed a tax to give money to the zoo, the art museum, the history museum, and then just recently they passed another tax to support all of the museums in mm. the St. Louis area, including the arch. And so some of that money for that latest tax, and that was passed in, what, 2016? So... Uh, I mean, an overwhelming majority voted right. yes for that tax because they knew it was coming to the arch. Mm -hmm. So with the arch, what was it that was special about the design of the arch that made it, that made people just know, like, oh, this is the one, this is it? Well, what is it about? 630 feet tall. Mm -hmm. I mean, it towers over everything else. I mean, you can see it from Highland, Illinois. Five miles away as you're coming in. I remember I moved here in 1974 from Louisville, Kentucky. And we, we were driving over. We had stopped near um, Vandalia for the night. And so um, they, my parents had bought a house in Webster Groves. And so we had to go. But we couldn't get in right early in the morning. So it was late in the afternoon before we actually be able to get into the house. And I remember we hit that bluff over that, that limestone bluff line. Cahokia Bluffs, and you can look across the American bottoms, you can see this big arch on the St. Louis Riverfront. And we're coming over, we cross the Papa Street Bridge, and we're taking 40 out towards Rock Hill Road, and I turned around, and the sun was just almost set on the horizon. And as we passed, the entire arch turned gold. Oh, wow. You know, I kind of remember thinking, well, that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Not knowing that I would spend my career here. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it is. People, I've talked to people over 30 years. I've been driving by this thing for years. I finally stopped. And what do they, what, what do, they do? They go up to it and they got to touch it to see if it's real. Mm. You know? Yeah. The simplicity of the architectural form. The arch is what they call an inverted weighted catenary curve. 
and there's actually a mathematical equation. I can give it to you if you want it. What that is, is if you take a chain and you hold the ends the same distance apart as it hangs, that's that weighted catenary curve that it creates. And then you turn it upside down, it becomes an arch. Hmm. It's the most stable form of archway. It goes back to the Greeks and the Romans and even the Egyptian architecture. And the guy that created the blueprint for wasn't he French? Uh, Saarinen? He was from Finland. He was born in Finland, but his parents had moved over to the United States. His father was an architect. In fact, his father had an entry. Hmm. And when they announced that Saarinen's design, because Saarinen was the upstart, you know, he wasn't well known. And so when they announced that Saarinen's uh, design had won, everybody thought it was the dad. Oh. <laughs> you know, they were congratulating him and the, and the judge said, oh, no, 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 no. You know, it was Arrow Saarinen's design, not the yeah. dad's, you know. Mm. But then they still had to come up with the money to build it. Right. Okay, so we knew what it was going to look like in 1948. Mm -hmm. They won't break ground until 1963. It would take them two and a half years, they would finish it in 1965. Part of the problem was that railroad trestle and, and finding that compromise. And the other problem was that dang federal funding. Mm. You know, they had to get that in there. And so they had to get Congress to approve that money. So it was a long struggle um, to get it to, to actually realize. Saarinen never saw it. Mm. He died of a brain aneurysm uh, just shortly before they broke ground. Wow. You know, so he never saw it completed. But he was the architect. He designed it, but he didn't tell them how to build it. Mm. And so it took the engineers to figure that out. Wow. Okay? And they were using the best of 1960s technology. You have more technology in that cell phone than they had available to them. Wow. Most of it was stubby pencil mm. and rulers and protractors. Goodness. So is it true that the arch is actually just as wide as it is tall? Yes. The distance from leg to leg on the outside is mm -hmm. the same distance as tall. So is that because of the equation? Yeah, because, gotcha. because of that weighted catenary curve. So the other thing that's cool about it is if you look at it 90 degrees from a distance, it almost looks like the Washington Monument at Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah? Because it's bigger at the base and it kind of gets narrowed top. It doesn't have that point on the top, but yeah. it's still, you know, if you line up the legs so you just see it as a single thing, yeah. it kind of looks like the Washington Monument standing there. So, you know, it's, it's simplicity in its design, but yet it stands up to time. You know, it's over 50 years old and it's still a cool, a cool thing to look at. Yeah. And what it, had, what it has done is it has saved the downtown because the downtown then was anchored around the arch. They built Bush Stadium in 1965. They won another neighborhood because the arch was downtown. They built the Ram Stadium downtown. You know, the businesses and everything all survived. The, the hotels, people come to see the arch. And at one time we were getting three and a half million people a year. So, you know, just by us being here, the amount of money people are spending in the city for food, for entertainment, for hotels and stuff. Is that, what are some of the other ways that the arch is given back to its city, basically? If you grew up in St. Louis, more than likely you went on a field trip down here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you remember your field trip? What did you do? It was so, it was so long ago. Yeah, but what did uh, you do? We, we, we sat, we, we walked through the, uh, the museum, uh -huh. and then we went to the top. And of you the pet arch. the fuzzy animals? 
Was there fuzzy animals? I don't remember. When you were in elementary remember. school, there were. <laughs> I, I graduated like five years ago. So. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. so I remember. Yeah, you would have seen the old museum then. Mm -hmm. When we had the, the covered wagon there and the buffalo and the long. The ski? Huh? The, was, it, was there a fur? Yeah. Okay, okay. I, it's, it's coming back to me a little bit. It's coming back to me a little yeah. bit. You were probably in one of my programs. I might have been. Okay. I might have been. <laughs> That's what we're giving back. Okay. We're telling the story of St. Louis, mm -hmm. the people of St. Louis. Not just the famous people like Errol Saarinen and Bernard Dickman. Mm -hmm. Did you know who Bernard Dickman was before I told you? No. I didn't know no. who any of these people were. Uh, Eliza Haywood. Nope. You know? No, she needs a movie. Well, they actually did a play on her just recently. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Here in St. Louis. Yeah, they mm -hmm. wrote a play, a uh, musical about oh, her. Oh, cool. Um, so, but, uh, you know, this was a... We tell the story of the founding of St. Louis. I mean, how many people know that we were actually French? Right. Before we were American. Not me. You know? That we were started to, as a business to trade with the American Indians mm -hmm. because they wanted fur. Mm -hmm. Primarily what they were after was the beaver because the beaver had the most value. The hair from the beaver was used to make felt for hats. The fur felt hat industry of the 18th and 19th century could be equivalent to the denim blue jean industry today. Mm. Everybody was either going to buy one or had one. Mm -hmm. And when it wore out, they were going to get another one. Mm -hmm. And it was made from the hair of the beaver. When Pierre Leclerc uh, arrives in New Orleans in 1750, they had already trapped the European beaver to total extinction. Wow. Because of that industry. And so now, where could you get beaver? The Missouri River and the Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. And so Leclerc didn't go and hunt the beaver himself. He brought goods from Europe that American Indians were interested in, mm. and he traded them for those furs. Mm. However, when you look at the records, the most that was being shipped out was actually deerskin. Mm. Probably three times more deerskin than beaver was being shipped to Europe from St. Louis. Mm. And that was primarily because of the Osage. And the Osage were the group of people, uh, people who claimed what St. Louis is. They claimed the land south of the Missouri River all the way to the Mississippi River. Now, they were encroachments from other tribes, you know, back and forth, and uh, there was hostilities between these tribes over control of the territory, but this was recognized as Osage land here. And so mm -hmm. Leclerc actually asked permission of the Osage, and he and his sons, who uh, continued the business after him, had a strong connection with the Osage. It was the Osage because they were so proficient in tanning the deer hides that they could be shipped to New Orleans and make it to Europe. Deer skin was the denim material of the 18th and 19th century. That was the working man's clothes. And so not only were they wearing it here like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, <laughs> okay, they were also wearing it in the factories in Europe. There's an old Irish ballad that talks about a young man who's just turned 11, and he's now old enough to work in the coal mines. And it says he puts on his doeskin trousers and goes and works in the mines. There's a good chance that doeskin came from here. Wow. Because it was cheap material, and it was very, very durable. It lasts a long time. It won't fray the knees as quickly as it is deerskin. So that was very inexpensive material to make clothing out of, and it was very durable if you were working. 
So that's what you were choosing to wear. And they were wearing it all through Europe, as well as North America. And so that's why the, uh, the Osage had so much influence on that trade. Okay, cool. What would you say, what is your favorite part of doing your job? Well, I just told you part of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's telling the stories that I find out. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things, you guys just missed it, last Saturday, we had a dance here at the Arch. Wow. We had a, what we call the 12th Afternoon Ball. Mm. And it comes from our French heritage. Mm. In, in the French time in St. Louis, the Christmas season started on Christmas Eve. And it started with Midnight Mass. And of course, the French were all Catholics. Because if you were in St. Louis, under the French and later under the Spanish, you couldn't be anything other than Catholic. Even if you weren't Catholic, if you wanted to move here, you had to become Catholic. Okay. Under their rule, that was the religion here. Okay, So they go to Midnight Mass. After Midnight Mass, they returned home, and they would have a big breakfast. And part of this big breakfast was 13 desserts. It was called the Revillon. And the 13 desserts represented the, 13, uh, the 12 apostles and Christ. Mm. And so, you know, the, each one was, had a specialty and stuff like that. Next morning when they got up, they went back to Mass because it was Christmas Day. And then the rest of the day would be uh, treated like any other Sunday. You didn't work, you relaxed at home, you were a family, you know, you might have a, a music in the house or uh, play cards or something like that, okay? Uh, the next event happens on New Year's Eve. The Why of My City captures and documents pieces of black history through written word and art while training the next generation to become active, engaged citizens. Our goal is that programs become a force multiplier, rippling into families, schools, and neighborhoods, offering solutions to common urban problems. The Why of My City, a play written by Mario Farwell with St. Louis Story Stitchers and directed by Gregory Carr, will be staged for the public June 15th and 16th, 2023 at the Dotzak Theater at Kranzberg Arts Foundation in the Grand Center Arts District. Tickets are on sale at Metro Six. St. Louis Story Stitches, The Why of My City is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Visit on the web at arts.gov and by the Missouri Arts Council, a state agency which receives support from the state of Missouri. The Why of My City is supported in part by Missouri Humanities Council, a state agency which receives support from the state of Missouri. Story Stitches is supported in part by the Lewis Prize for Music's 2020 Accelerator Award. The mission of the Lewis Prize is to partner with leaders who create positive change by investing in young people through music. Additional support for Stitchcast Studio and Story Stitches programs is provided by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund, City of St. Louis Youth at Risk Crime Prevention Grant of 2023, Trio Foundation, Deaconess Foundation, and the Arts and Education Council. St. Louis Story Stitches and the Center is supported in part by Kranzberg Arts Foundation as a resident organization. Thank you for listening. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches. Story stitches. Story stitches. Story stitches. Story stitches. Story stitches.